0: Patients undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention require antiplatelet therapy to prevent instant thrombosis. Ticagrelor quickly became the antiplatelet of choice following the PLATO trial that showed promising results when compared to clopidogrel. Fast forward, and this viewpoint has been challenged with additional publications such as ISAR-REACT-5 that contrast the results of triton Timmy to support safety with prasagrel. Here to put the pieces of the optimal P2Y12 antiplatelet puzzle together is Mayo Clinic pharmacist Dr. Cassandra Schmidt.
1: Today, I will be challenging the notion that antiplatelet agents are one size fits all. Starting off, we will review the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association guidelines. Uh, however, just like our antiplatelet agents, patients are often not one size. Patients are often falling into gray areas of the guidelines, and so therefore, we will review the literature, both old and new, to talk about the safety and efficacy of our three Mm -hmm. antiplatelet agents, and then tie it back to patient-specific factors that may influence P2Y12 prescribing. So we'll start off today with a patient case. CS is a 74-year-old female who presents to the emergency department with acute onset, chest pain, and left arm pain. She has a past medical history of migraines, acid reflux, and acute ischemic stroke, for which she takes pantoprazole, topiramate, and aspirin. The ED team is concerned for an acute coronary event and collects an EKG that shows ST elevation in the anterolateral leads concerning for myocardial infarction. This, combined with her increasing troponins, sets off the STEMI activation, and the patient is then whisked away to the cath lab. The coronary angiography report reads that the patient has a 100% obstruction of the right middle coronary artery and for which the patient receives one drug eluting stent. Now while the patient did receive an initial antiplatelet load in the emergency department, the cardiology team then asks you, which antiplatelet do you recommend? So if you could take out your phones or on your computers, go to polleb.com forward slash mayo rx and then go ahead and select uh, your answer choice that you think is most appropriate. So for answer choices we have A, ticagrelor, B, clopidogrel, or C, prasugrel. And I'll just give everyone a few moments to go ahead and respond. All right, so we'll go ahead and stop pulling there. Uh, and here we, I can see that we're pretty split between recommending ticagrelor and clopidogrel. And then it looks like maybe about one or, two page, one or two people voted for Prazegrel. So let's take a look at uh, our literature and our guidelines and see what's recommended. So before we move on, I'd like to introduce our antiplatelet agents just as a review. So we have clopidogrel, ticagrelor, and Prazegrel. Uh, each of these agents is loaded during acute coronary event, and then requires once to twice daily dosing. But one of the biggest uh, differences between agents here that I want to draw your attention to is the differences in metabolism. So clopidogrel is a prodrug that requires CYP2C19 conversion to the active metabolite. Where this becomes a problem is in patients that have different uh, alleles or polymorphisms for CYP2C19 that may reduce or uh, even uh, negate the cyp 2 c 9 Activity and therefore reduce uh, the conversion of, of clopidogrel to the active drug. So we'll uh, discuss this further. Um, but in regards to other differences in antiplatelet agents, uh, one of the most, or what the second concern I want to dr- draw your attention to, is cost with our agents. So b- both clopidogrel and prasugrel are uh, available as generic drugs right now, and according to GoodRx, these can be um, acquired at cash prices of about 9 to $12 per month. However, ticagrelor remains as brand name only and is quite costly to patients at nearly $400 per month. So looking at the prescribing trends, on the graph we have on the left is uh, prescribing trends in the United States from 2008 to 2016. Now this is largely influenced by when these drugs came to the market. So clopidogrel was our first P2Y12 antiplatelet agent, approved in 1997. For the first decade, it was the standard of therapy since it was our only choice. Then in 2009, prasugrel was FDA approved and quickly became, became a part of the market share as, patient, as providers started prescribing less clopidogrel and more Prazagrel. Then in 2011, ticagrelor was also approved. We continue to see further reductions in the prescribing of clopidogrel, and I would say a slight decrease or um, moderately the same amount of prescriptions for prasugrel, and then an increasing number of prescriptions for ticagrelor. Now, I want to compare this to what our standard practice here is at Mayo Clinic. So this graph on the right displays our inpatient uh, orders of P2Y12 agents at Mayo Clinic St. Mary's Hospital. So over the last six months, we can see that clopidogrel was ordered the most frequently at about 48,000 inpatient orders. Then we have ticagrelor at less than 200 orders, and prasugrel only at 21 orders here in the last six months. So now that we understand nationwide trends and what our practice is here at Mayo Clinic, let's take a look and see what the guidelines recommend. So starting off, I have the 2014 ACC AHA and STEMI guidelines. And they recommend that it's reasonable to consider ticagrelor over clopidogrel, but there's not much mention of prasugrel. Then we have the 2016 ACC AHA a STEMI guideline updates where they say that it's reasonable, again, to consider ticagrelor over clopidogrel and that prazogrel is also a reasonable option if there's no stroke or TIA history. And then last but not least, we have the European Society of Car- Cardiology STEMI guidelines, which recommends patients be given ticagrelor or prasugrel, and that clopidogrel should only be used in limited cases where ticagrelor or prasugrel is unavailable, uh, contraindicated, or uh, too costly for the patient. So we'll move right along into our first trial. We have the Triton-Timmy trial, which looked at prasugrel versus clopidogrel in about 14,000 patients. So these patients had to present to the emergency department with at least 10 minutes of symptoms for concerning for acute coronary syndrome. Now this did include both NSTEMI and STEMI patients. So patients were randomized to receive either prasugrel versus clopidogrel, and then were continued on DAPT therapy for 12 months And we're followed up for the primary outcome of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. And then for our secondary outcome, we have TIMI major bleeding. And I'll just touch on the TIMI major bleeding definition here. Uh, But essentially, TIMI major bleeding is the incidence of any intracranial hemorrhage, a drop in hemoglobin of at least 5 grams per deciliter, or fatal bleeding. All right, so for our primary outcome, uh, we have the cumulative incidence of cardiovascular death, myo- non-fatal myocardial infarction, and non-fatal stroke. We have the blue lines that represent this primary outcome, and we see a reduction of 2.2%, an absolute reduction of 2.2% with the use of prasugrel compared to clopidogrel. Now this was a statistically significant difference with a narrow confidence interval, and I feel comfortable saying that prasugrel. Uh, lowered the risk for patients uh, in having the primary outcome of cardiovascular death, MI, and stroke. And then for our safety outcome, again, we have TIMI major bleeding. So this is represented by the red lines at, at the bottom of the graph. And here we see an absolute difference of 0.6% increased uh, incidence of TIMI major bleeding with the prasugrel. And again, this was statistically significant and shows that prasugrel may be associated with increased bleeding when compared to clopidogrel. So with Triton Timmy, they did do many subgroup analyses and post hoc analyses. So on the left, we have our forest plot of three different subgroups where we saw a actual risk reduction in patients that did better with prasugrel. So in patients that had diabetes, they had a thirty percent risk reduction from the general primary outcome. And this was also uh, seen in patients that were 65 years or less or had a creatinine clearance of 60 mLs mLs per minute or greater. Now each of these values were statistically significant and suggest that these uh, patients could benefit more so from Parazagrel than the standard population. Moving into a second post-hoc analysis, we have an outcome that looked at the death from any cause, myocardial infarction, stroke, and non-cabbage bleeding. So I did mention that patients, uh, that prasugrel was associated with an increased risk in Timi-major bleeding, and this was found to be most significant in patients that had a prior stroke or TIA history, uh, which is one of the reasons why that is a contraindication to the use of Prezogrel uh, from this trial and then also patients that were ages 75 years or older or a weight less than 60 kilograms. So at the end of the study they did a sensitivity analysis and pulled uh, these uh, po- patient populations from the box on the right out of the analysis and when that was done there was no difference between uh, clopidogrel and prasugrel in the rate of major bleeding. So to me this suggests that prasugrel is safe to use in patients with the exception of the patients listed in the red box. All right, so we've just talked about prasugrel versus Clopidogrel, and now we have the next trial, which is the PLATO trial from 2009 that compares Ticagrelor to Clopidogrel. This was another large uh, study with just over 18,000 patients, that, and that included patients that had uh, STEMI or NSTEMI. So the proportion of patients uh, for these ACS types was a just under 40% for STEMI and about 43% for non-STEMI. They followed these patients for up to 12 months and looked at the primary outcome, that's a CV composite score that I'll touch more on on the next slide. And then our secondary outcome again here is TIMI major bleeding. And one thing I do want to point out, again from our baseline characteristics, is the dosing strategy that was used for clopidogrel. So patients in either the ticagrelor or clopidogrel arm were eligible to receive clopidogrel loading doses in uh, in the ED prior to PCI. But I do want to point out that with clopidogrel, about 60% of the patients got a 300 to 375 milligram dose, and only 20% of patients got the full 600 milligram dose, which is our standard of practice today. So on the left we have our primary endpoint, which is a uh, primary endpoint, which is a composite of vascular death, myocardial infarction, or stroke at 12 months, and we see that ticagrelor is associated with a lower incidence of our primary endpoint. So we have 9.8% versus 11.7% with clopidogrel, and this was statistically significant in favor of ticagrelor. And for our safety outcome of Timmy major bleeding. We really see no difference between ticagrelor and uh, clopidogrel, so 7.9% versus 7.7%, and again, this was not statistically significant for increased risk of bleed. So I want to tie this back to, again, our subgroup patients. So looking at our forest plot, we see that patients that were randomized uh, in this study that were located in North America actually preferred clopidogrel. So you might be thinking, okay, what does location have to do with it? Well, uh, currently, our standard aspirin dosing is 81 milligrams per day uh, here in North America, but at the time of this study, uh, our practice was full-dose aspirin. So in more than half of the patients from North America that were enrolled in uh, this trial, they were uh, all on full-dose aspirin. So we call this the North American paradox, and uh, with ticagrelor, we know that um, higher doses of aspirin increase the risk for bleeding, which is why we cap dosing for aspirin at 100 milligrams. So this could uh, kind of be due to, or the difference of uh, patients in North America not benefiting to Kegelor could have been due to the aspirin dosing specifically. And then we see in patients that weighed less than 80 kilograms, that were 75 years or older, or that had unstable angina, had uh, an attenuated effect from ticagrelor, so they didn't do as well with ticagrelor as the rest of the general population did. So that would lead me to maybe consider an alternative agent such as clopidogrel in those patient populations. And then with another uh, secondary analysis, um, I just want to drive home that our difference in the primary outcome here was largely due to a reduction in the number of uh, arterial thromboses, uh, repeat MI, and then vascular causes of death. And each of these were statistically significant when used with decaglore. Alright, so now I have a newer trial um, that uh, may, be, may be unfamiliar to some of you guys. So now that we've compared ticagrelor and prasugrel to Clopidogrel, it's time to compare them head to head. So this is our first study looking at ticagrelor versus prasugrel in about 4,000 patients. So these included uh, all ACS types of patients and uh, patients that were also planned to go to PCI during the index hospitalization. So as far as baseline characteristics go, we had just over 40% of patients being STEMI patients, and again, uh, about 46% being non-STEMI patients, which uh, follows suit with our previous trials. About 84% of patients in both arms did go for PCI, and relatively few patients uh, needed to go to cabbage following PCI. And as far as loading doses go, um, I do wanna draw your attention to this because this is really important to the design of this study. But in the react 5 trial, uh, this was not so much a head-to-head trial looking at two different drugs, but more so two different dosing strategies. So for this trial, in the STEMI population, as soon as they identified STEMI, those patients were loaded with their antiplatelet agent as soon as possible after randomization. However, in our NSTEMI population, patients that uh, were identified as having an NSTEMI and randomized to the ticagrelor arm did receive their ticagrelor at randomization, but the difference lies in those uh, that are in the prasugrel arm. So patients that were identified as having an NSTEMI did not receive their loading dose until they went to PCI. And then for this trial, they looked at one year uh, primary outcomes of the composite of death, myocardial infarction, and stroke, and then secondary, they looked at uh, BARC, which is the Bleeding Academic Research Consortium, major bleeding type three through five, which I will introduce in a minute. So for a primary outcome of the composite of death, myocardial infarction, or stroke, we actually see a reduction with the use of prasugrel. So ticagrelor was associated with a 9.3% incidence of the primary endpoint and 6.9% with uh, prasugrel. This was statistically significant and suggests that Prazegrel um, may have more efficacy when compared to Ticagrelor. And then as far as our safety outcome goes, I have listed here for you the differences between Timu major bleeding and Bark major bleeding. So Bark major bleeding does include timmy major bleeding in their definition, and then includes also cabbage-related bleeding or overt bleeding requiring uh, transfusion. And so here this trial selected bark major bleeding because they felt that it was more specific to the antiplatelet agents. So looking at our outcome, we see that ticagrelor is associated with the 5.8% um, incidence of bark major bleeding and then 5.6% for prasugrel. This was not statistically significant and does not indicate any difference in the risk for major bleeding with prasugrel and ticagrelor. So here we also have subgroups to compare. Uh, so specifically on the left, in our NSTEMI or unstable angina subgroup, we can see that patients that were 75, less than 75 years old, that weighed more than 60 kilograms, that had diabetes or unstable angina, actually favored prasugrel from the general population. And then in our STEMI subgroup, uh, this specifically pulled, pulled the data from the REACT-5 trial for the patients that uh, had STEMI specifically, and they actually saw a greater benefit with prasugrel when compared to Cagrelor. T- so reduction in the primary outcome of 7.2% from 9.6%. Now this suggests to me that prasugrel, again, is safe to use in our patient population uh, when excluding the patients that we previously defined as not having benefit from prasugrel. And then it is also robust in using in both NSTEMI and STEMI patients. So I have here an overall summary where the boxes in blue represent our primary, uh, primary efficacy outcomes. And essentially these are thrombotic events uh, such as cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. And we can see that prasugrel overall uh, had the lowest incidence of these thrombotic outcomes. Ticagrelor wasn't too far behind, and both did better than clopidogrel. And then the boxes in the bo- on the bottom represent our uh, bleeding outcomes. So mainly, TIMI major bleeding, with the inclusion of the SPARK major bleeding in our last trial. And here we see that prasugrel had the lowest incidence of major bleeding events, especially when compared to ticagrelor. And then uh, clopidogrel was associated with the lowest incidence of bleeding events. But overall, very comparable between the three agents. Alright, so now it's time for our next Poll Everywhere question. If you could pull out your phones again and go back to PollEV.com forward slash And this is a hotspot question, so you'll just click on whichever box you think is the correct answer. And so here the question is, select the patient that's most likely to benefit from prasugrel. We have a 56 year old NSTEMI patient with type 2 diabetes and CKD stage 4. We have a 72-year-old male STEMI patient with a prior history of stroke. We have a 60-year-old male and STEMI patient with type 2 diabetes. And then we have a 70-year-old male with severe cancer-associated cachexia at 52 kilograms. And I'll just give everyone a moment to respond. Alright, so now that everyone has had a chance to answer, uh, we'll go ahead and talk through each of the patients. So our first patient being a 56 year old and STEMI patient with type 2 diabetes in CKD stage 4 is likely not the most optimal candidate, given their creatinine clearance would be less than 60 mLs per minute with CKD4. Next, our 72 year old male STEMI patient with a prior history of stroke, I'm very glad to see no one chose this answer as prasugrel is contraindicated in patients with a prior history of stroke or TIA. And the next are 60-year-old male and semi-patient with type 2 diabetes. I would say that this is the correct answer uh, because this patient is uh, less than our 75, eight, 75-year-old age cutoff that we saw patients uh, did not have benefit from prasugrel. And then we also saw that patients with type 2 diabetes uh, had a greater uh, reduction in the primary outcome with Prazogrel. And then last, our 70-year-old male with severe cancer-associated cachexia at 52 kilograms. I would probably avoid the use of Prazogrel in this patient given that the patient weighs less than 60 kilograms. So now we've just talked a lot about different considerations such as efficacy, bleed risk, uh, age, weight of patients, and also their diabetes status. And I uh, briefly alluded to it at the beginning of the presentation, what about pharmacogenomics as this HIP2C19 gene plays a role in uh, antiplatelet therapy? And then how does this play into cost? So I'd like to introduce to you our different alleles that are available um, for patients to have that affect their metabolism of clopidogrel. So, we start off with normal or ultra me- uh, metabolizers that are star 1 or star 17 allele carriers. These patients are appropriately able to convert uh, clopidogrel to the active drug and have no concerns with the use of clopidogrel. Next, we have our intermediate metabolizers that contain at least one star 2 or star 3 allele. Now we know that the star two or star three allele is associated with a reduction in activity of CYP2C19, so we consider these patients to be intermediate metabolizers. And last, we have our poor metabolizers. These patients have at least two, either CYP2, or have two of either the star two or star three allele. So they can have two twos, two threes, or a two and a three. And these patients are associated with loss of function of the CYP2C19 metabolism, and again, uh, guidelines recommend considering alternative agents. Now, the incidence of these alleles or the frequency that they occur in the general population is important for us to know. Uh, A single star two or star three allele is present in the general population of about 32%. However, this is specific to um, people of certain ethnicities and uh, specifically in East Asians and Central and South Africans. So in people of East Asian descent, uh, they have at least one star two or star three allele, and the incidence of that is about 50% of the population. And then as far as uh, Central and South Africans go, it's slightly lower at about 20% of the population. So here we have our first trial uh, looking at uh, genotyping as a uh, prescribing algorithm in patients receiving antiplatelet agents. So this was about 2,500 patients that were all STEMI patients that had undergone a percutaneous coronary intervention with stent placement. Here our primary outcome is again the composite of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. And then our secondary safety outcome is PLATO major bleeding, which is again a new definition for us. Uh, so PLATO major bleeding does include the Timmy major bleeding that I introduced to you at the beginning, and then adds on patients that experience hypovolemic shock from bleeding, as well as cardiac tamponade. So our study design is a little unique and I'll walk you through it. We have 1,200 patients randomized to genotype and 1,200 patients randomized to the standard of care. In the genotype group, patients were genotyped prior to the initiation of therapy. Patients that were carriers of the loss of function allele, so either one or two, star two or star three alleles, were given to And here we can see that 39% of patients did receive to And then in the other arm, patients that were not identified to have a loss of function allele were given Clopidogrel. Then we have our standard arm of therapy. Now, the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines came out right before this trial uh, began and the European Society of Cardiology had recommended everyone consider the use of Ticagrelor or prasugrel. So this study actually decided to use their standard, of, use Ticagrelor in their standard of therapy arm, which may leave you kind of wondering why. Because if we're looking to determine if pharmacogenetics or pharmacogenomics improves patient outcomes, then wouldn't we compare it to Clopidogrel? So as far as our outcomes in the study go, we have again our composite uh, outcome here, which does include major bleeding in it. Uh, So with our genotyping group, we see 5.1% cumulative incidence of our composite primary outcome, and then 5.9% of our uh, composite primary outcome in the standard group. So we have a slight reduction in uh, our incidence, and this did remain statistically significant for non-inferiority. As far as plato-major bleeding goes, genotyping was associated with a reduction in major bleeding. So 9.8% of patients in the genotype group experienced plato-major bleeding, while 12.5% in the standard of therapy group experienced bleeding. And again, this was statistically significant for non-inferiority in favor of the genotyping group. So some conclusions that we can draw from the popular genetics trial is that pharmacogenomic testing was non-inferior to standard prescribing. Pharmacogenomic testing, uh, may the use of pharmacogenomic testing may contribute to lower bleed rates in patients when identifying candidates that are um, optimal candidates for clopidogrel rather than the use of standard ticagrelor. And then I would say that a major limitation of this trial is that the standard of therapy arm uh, compared Was uh, patients that continued on ticagrelor therapy, as I would have liked to see how the outcomes would have differed in patients receiving clopidogrel that were not genotyped. All right, next up we have our Taylor PCI study, Uh, and one thing to note about the Taylor PCI study is that a Mayo Clinic cardiologist was actually um, heavily involved uh, with this study. So again, this is a genotype versus conventional study. looking at patients receiving um, pharmacogenomic testing prior to the initiation of antiplatelet agents, and then really compares or looks at patients receiving ticagrelor and clopidogrel. So for a total patient population, it's similar, similar in size with about 5,000 patients. And this included patients that had coronary artery disease that were planned to go for PCI, as well as acute coronary syndromes. However, the incidence of acute coronary syndromes did make up the majority of our study population. So for the study design of this trial, it's very similar to the previous, where patients that are identified as carrying the loss of function allele are prescribed to Cagrelor, and those that do not have the loss of function allele are prescribed clopidogrel. However, in this study, 132 patients uh, in the clopidogrel arm were identified as being loss of function carriers, but we were still prescribed clopidogrel. The authors know that this was due to inconclusive testing results or patient or provider preference, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. And then in our conventional arm, we have uh, a majority of prescribing done with clopidogrel here, and then a uh, very few patients were uh, given to Kegelor. And then you may be wondering, okay, so how do we know which patient in the conventional arm had the loss of functional allele? Uh, as 932 patients of the clopidogrel group were identified as having this allele. So they did genotype patients at the end of the study. That way, there was no ethical concerns with knowing the patient's genotype and continuing to give them clopidogrel anyways. So for primary outcomes, we see that uh, genotyping was associated with a lower cumulative incidence of the composite of death, myocardial infarction, stroke, stent thrombosis, and ischemia. However, when compared to conventional, this was not statistically significant and suggests that genotyping may really not change patient outcomes. And for our cumulative incidence of our safety outcome, we have major and minor TIMI bleeding. And here again, we really see no difference between the genotyping and conventional group. The subconclusions that we can draw from Taylor PCI is that outcomes did not differ in Differ in patients with the loss of functional allele on clopidogrel. So I did like that this trial um, compared patients that received universal clopidogrel versus uh, those that received targeted therapy with decagrelor based on their pharmacogenomics. However, I would still say that this trial leaves us wondering what the utility is of sit 2 c 19 pharmacogenomic testing for the initial prescribing. And then I wonder, how cost-effective is this for us to do? So before we get into a study looking at the cost effectiveness, I'd like to just review some terms that come up quite frequently in our CEAs, or cost effectiveness analyses. The first one being quality adjusted life year, or QALY. And QALY is a measure of disease burden and its effect on both the quality and quantity of life that is lived. So for this study, the authors um, reduced the number of QALYs for, by 0.12, Uh, for each uh, thrombotic event that patients experience. And then another important term here is net monetary benefit. So this is, if I pay you X amount of dollars, how much is this gonna benefit me? And usually this is from the perspective of the payer in these studies. So for net monetary benefit, we have quality adjusted life years multiplied by willingness to pay. And with this study, I do want to note that this is a um, Markov modeling study, and this is not uh, actual patients. They did use uh, data from the PLANDO trial to um, to kind of uh, replicate the incidence of primary outcomes and secondary safety events throughout their uh, modeling analysis, and then they did use the costs listed here, but we will talk about these further. All right, so initially they looked at three different prescribing strategies. The first one being universal clopidogrel, which is just clopidogrel for everyone without pharmacogenomic testing. Then they looked at genotype-guided escalation, which is essentially given patients clopidogrel and then escalating them to ticagrelor if they carried the loss of functional allele. And then next, we have non-guided de-escalation. And in this strategy, patients are given 30 days of ticagrelor and then switched to uh, clopidogrel for the remainder of their DAPT therapy. Drawing your attention to our quality column, we can see that the non-guided de-escalation was associated with the greatest number of quality adjusted life years. So this would indicate that patients have a higher quality and a higher quantity of life uh, for their disease burden or their acute coronary syndromes. And then the next important thing to consider is how much does this cost for this uh, increase in the quality adjusted life years? So we can see that the genotype guided escalation was associated with the most significant cost and nearly $6,500. And when normalizing our quality to our total cost, we can see that the non-guided de-escalation essentially gave us the most bang for our buck with the lowest uh, cost per quality. The study then goes on to compare this to two other uh, prescribing strategies. So we saw that non-guided de-escalation was our most cost effective compared to our previous two. And then they compared this to genotype guided de-escalation where patients were started on ticagrelor and then de-escalated to clopidogrel if they were not loss of function carriers. And then this was also compared to universal ticagrelor where everyone received ticagrelor without pharmacogenomic testing. So again, looking at our qualities, we can see that universal ticagrelor was associated with the greatest quality. However, it was also the most expensive because ticagrelor is an expensive drug. So when normal, normalizing our quality and our total cost, again we see that non-guided de-escalation therapy with 30 days of ticagrelor and then the remainder of dap therapy with clopidogrel is our most cost effective. Now with any cost effectiveness analysis, there are a lot of assumptions that are made assumptions about the cost of the drugs, a cost of, assumptions about uh, the cost of medical treatment and testing, as well as the incidence of all of the events. But one of the most patient-specific factors here is the cost of ticagrelor. So how much is this gonna cost the patient? And so the study does a one-way sensitivity analysis varying the cost of ticagrelor. And so when ticagrelor costs less than $58 per month, uh, it actually favored universal ticagrelor for everyone. However, this is not really optimal, as ticagelor often uh, does not cost less than $58. Next, we have a range from 58 to 191, which some patients may fall into. But here we can see that the pharmacogenomic uh, guided de-escalation, so uh, patients starting on ticagelor and then de-escalating to clopidogrel if they did not have loss of functional allele, uh, benefited the most at this cost range. And then we have last we have when uh, would cost more than $191 per month, we see that the non-guided de-escalation regimen or strategy was the most uh, cost-effective strategy for providers to use. And I would say that, for the most part, this is where patients would fall. And obviously, uh, this depends a lot on uh, what kind of insurance plan the patient has, if they've met their deductible, if they're in the donut hole. And so again, these studies rely on a lot of assumptions. So some conclusions we can draw from our pharmacogenomics and pharmacoeconomics studies. We see that there's numerous strategies that exist in post-PCI antiplatelet prescribing, and we're really not limited to just prescribing one agent for the duration of DAPT therapy. These studies also showed that non-guided de-escalation may be the most cost-effective choice in patients for P2Y12 prescribing. Now, I know that other institutions that I've had the opportunity to see uh, as a pharmacy student, uh, I did see institutions that uh, actually applied this practice, and so patients would get 30 days of ticagrelor, and sometimes actually was able to get that for free uh, with coupons, and then were switched to clopidogrel. And then, last, again, with all of our pharmacoeconomic trials, uh, there are assumptions that may limit external validity to individual patients as well as to our entire patient population. So, now that we've talked a lot about different patient centered factors, I want to know what the most important is for you when you choose an antiplatelet agent. So, go ahead and type in your response. So I'll go ahead and talk about some of these as they continue to roll in, uh, but I saw cost, obviously, was a big concern. Um, I think cost is definitely limiting to patients when prescribing antiplatelet agents, um, and essentially it's associated mostly with the cost of ticagrelor, as both clopidogrel and prazogrel should be available um, at less than $15 per month. I also have seen uh, effectiveness and efficacy. So I think I provided a good amount of data suggesting that uh, we have similar efficacy between agents but that um, Prasagryl and Ticagalor may be associated with increased uh, effectiveness. And then I also saw one that I wanted to talk about was shortness of breath and side effects. So one thing that I haven't kind of uh, discussed through each of these trials is adverse effects experienced by patients. So with all of our trials that looked at ticagrelor, uh, there was a varying range of patients that discontinued use of ticagrelor due to dyspnea. So with the dyspnea, uh, it ranged from about 1% to I think as much as 14% in the trials that led to discontinuation. And is definitely a consideration for prescribing. So wrapping up with some final recommendations, I will say that prasugrel should be considered as one of our initial uh, agents for antiplatelet of choice. We've shown that uh, Prazegrel is associated with a lower uh, incidence of cumulative thrombotic events without an increased risk of bleeding, as long as it's not used in the subgroups of patients that we've previously identified. In patients that are not eligible to li- receive Prazegrel, I would recommend Ticagalor in the following patients. So I think that it's reasonable to use Ticagalor with a 30-day de-escalation, de-escalation strategy that we've previously discussed. I would also consider ticagrelor in patients that have a prior stroke or TIA history that contraindicates them from using prasugrel. I would also consider patients that have a high-risk ethnicity, such as our East Asians or a South and Central Africans, to be given ticagrelor, even though our pharmacogenomic studies do not uh, show it really any uh, increased benefit with doing pharmacogenomics. And then last, thrombotic risk, I would recommend to Kegelor in these patients just because clopidogrel was associated with a slightly higher uh, incidence of thrombotic outcomes. And then for clopidogrel specifically, I would recommend patients that are at an elevated bleed risk, if they are 75 years or older, if they weigh less than 60 kilograms, if they have significant cost concerns, or if they have adherence issues. Now in comparing this to what our current practice is, I would say that most of our patients uh, get clopidogrel. However, a number of those patients are likely uh, eligible to receive other antiplatelet agents. So today, I hope I've provided you with a framework uh, of evidence that helps you in selecting a more optimal antiplatelet agent for your patients following percutaneous coronary intervention for acute coronary syndromes.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.